You know, I saw this book and I think it's like really so beautiful and it's so unusual. I mean, it's not when I say unusual, I don't mean, you know, I mean, it's like the rest of India is so ignorant about this, about Manipuri, you know, about all things Manipuri perhaps, but this especially, you know, the artwork and this, the the myths, it's completely new material and it's fascinating. So talk about that. Thank you very much for having me on. It's really a pleasure to be on your podcast. And yes, I do have to agree with you that the book is rather beautiful uh, because the Penguin um, Random House India team has done an extraordinary job of producing this book, the design mm. cover inside. I tell my friends, and I told the artist also, all the encomiums I've been getting are really because of the artwork and the design because no one has read the books inside. That's what you judge the book is by the cover. <laughs> so, and, and yes, the artwork is unusual. Um, it is probably, and I was telling my editor, uh, Arpita Nath at um, Penguin, that mm-hmm. we're probably going to be introducing a whole new school of art, a whole new art form with the drawings and with the paintings in, and that is why. And these are done by a young Manipuri artist I had the absolute good fortune to run into, to discover. Mm -hmm. And um, he's a printmaker and Mm -hmm. teaches at uh, Manipuri University, but he's the only person who is using the old uh, Subika art form of Manipuri manuscripts, which Mm -hmm. is Actually, the come to think of it, the equivalent of religious art form oh. um, manuscripts, because only the religious and um, uh, manuscripts about fortune telling and sorcery and magic, uh, these are the ones that are illustrated. The other manuscripts, which are on statecraft and botany and you know art or the treatises and polo and clouds and so on, they are not illustrated. But oh. the, the sacred manuscripts, which have talent manic power, um, mm. manuscript of fortune telling and magic and sorcery and divination and ritual. These are uh, a group of uh, manuscripts called Subika and okay. Kutlavi. And these are the ones that are, man- that are illustrated in this really ex- uh, very unusual manner. Believe me, I've checked in with curators in Bombay and New York and in London and mm. young men, uh, about mm. this. And everyone says, like, where is this art from? We've never seen this. It looks a little yes. bit like Lebanese. It looks a little bit like Bagan uh, mural, wall murals in monasteries. Uh, we see a little bit of tribal elements in it. Maybe a little. We know we do not know where this art form is coming from. Mm. So it is a yeah. new 
yeah and it, it did remind me of balinese stuff you know which i saw in i mean years ago i saw samples of i don't know from the 1920s balinese paintings uh, which are in the trivandrum museum i think they've got one full room of them and this reminded me so much of that actually it is this art form is like a raw shark test you know it depends on what your art exposure and experience is and oh. you kind of project into it because it does not have any uh, familiarity uh, yes. with any of the art historians and curators in the world at this point yeah it's lovely it's lovely and it's so uh, you know what was amazing when i saw it and then of course i read the stories and and even the stories are like uh, you know they they are they they're a world unto themselves so talk about how you collected them and you know yes they are indeed a world you're really stealing the words out out of my mouth <laughs> <laughs> they are into a, a really a world in, uh, unto themselves um and that is what drew me to it actually hmm. The, uh, the extraordinary and intriguing observation that uh, the thought that struck me as I started working and taking an interest in the old Manipuri manuscript tradition um, about 15 years ago um, mm. was that there is a mythology uh, in such a small place that mm. is distinctive. There is a Manipuri mythology. We don't have a French mythology or a German mythology. We have Greek mm. mythology and Hindu mm. mythology and Egyptian and so on, but not every civilization has a mythology. How yes. come this state back then it must have been only about two hundred thousand people max in terms of population for most of its history? How hmm. did this develop its own mythology? Hmm. And to study mythology, you have to study other mythologies also. It's only by yes. referencing and comparison that you begin mm. to know where and, uh, where and how. And there are indeed some similarities and themes because some of them are universal, are universal themes. Yes, you know, there are uh, stories about the floods and you know, which is yes. an archetypal thing, and stories about the two brothers, the sibling brothers, uh, trying to uh, gain the birthright of their father, for instance, which you find in the Bible as well as in Hindu mythology yes. of um, Kartik and Ganesh, for instance. And here, yes. you find one yes. of the stories is about Sanamahi and Pakangba. Mm. Uh, so, and then there's uh, other myths that I have not written about, which maybe I will do someday if a penguin would be so kind and if this does well. And mm. there are stories about shooting the sun, for instance, which you find oh. in Chinese mythology. You find it in Lepcha mythology in Sikkim, mm. for instance. People mm. say it's because there was a comet at the time and two suns appeared in the sky. Some myths say the ten suns. But the idea that some hero shot down a sun so that we only have one sun today is a very common myth. Mm. Um, so uh, we don't know where this, uh, these, uh, this mythology really comes from until uh, comparative mythology, a, mytho a mythological study is really done, or perhaps mm. even developed. Um, and so that is what drew me to it. And I was actually looking at manuscripts in general, and it was only further down the line that I began to think of the uh, uh, art form the, in the manuscripts. Because Manipur, uh, Manjula, is really not a, a place, a civilization that has high development in art. My friend mm -hmm. I in New York used to say, oh, so me, you cannot say that there is no art. But, you know, we have Manipuri dance, as you know. Yeah. We have Manipuri Natsankirtan, you know, mm. we have Ratantiyam. Yes. We have, in terms of performance, we are top notch. 
We are up to that, okay? Mm-hmm. But in terms of visual, visual arts and sculpture, there is not very much, except this mm-hmm. art form, uh, which is pre-Hindu, because yes. Manipur became Hindu in the early 18th century. And then we have the Hindu art forms that decorate the mandaps around here. Mm-hmm. And then we have some modern painting that kind of started a little bit in the 1890s, which is when the uh, from Manipur became part of the British Indian Empire. Even though mm-hmm. the king remained, like many princely kingdoms, the in- British Indian Empire stretched from Afghanistan to Burma. At that time. Yes. So, uh, so I was intrigued that here's this little art form, and so I was planning to do an art exhibition with my friend Lee Metlassen in New York for two galleries in Brooklyn and in Berlin, mm-hmm. and uh, but then that got nowhere or it was put too much further back in the back burner, and when the um, proposal came from Penguin. Uh, mm-hmm. for a children's book. Then I turned mm-hmm. my gallery notes that I'd written for various projects of mine, including polo and rice and so on, mm-hmm. into children's stories. And then I, f- dis- then I decided that the abstract modernist uh, art form that I was planning to show along with these manuscripts was really not so relevant mm-hmm. and that I needed a much more illustrative um, art form for kids. Mm-hmm. And so I was absolutely overjoyed when I ran into Sapa and his work because he's the only artist working with this art form. He's a modern artist. These paintings mm-hmm. in the Penguin Book are modern paintings, but they're all based on very traditional, very rare and unseen uh, art form uh, of Asia. Okay. And, and, and he's done a great job, I have to say. you know, A fantastic job. Hmm. Okay, but you know, going back to this thing about, uh, uh, I thought Manipur became Hindu uh, in in around the 14th century. I didn't know it was as late as the, uh, much later than that, was it? It's much later. It's Vaishnav Hinduism. Yes, Vaishnav. Um, I've been uh, to Manipur, so, you know. Yes, okay. All right. Next time you come, you have to have lunch. Yeah, definitely. But uh, so yeah, so I thought somebody told me it was around the 14th century. So no. you're saying it's even later than that, is it? Yeah, the, uh, the inscriptions and the manuscript tradition starts around the 14th century. Okay. Um, oh. co- uh, contemporaneous record keeping, for instance. There were other record keeping um, uh, pillars and inscriptions and plates and so on before that. Uh, mm-hmm. But we do have a uh, court chronicle. And that was, uh, uh, common sense would say, logic would dictate that it was actually oral and then written down later for mm-hmm. the early years. And then record keeping as and when things happen uh, really started in the 14th century. But before that, uh, which is quite similar to the sources and the, uh, and the character and nature of these uh, stories that I've also written, they have both oral and text origins. Okay. And oral traditions are always older than. Mm. Mm. So you know, when I was like reading the stories, I thought they they're lovely and you know they very appropriate for children. But I think even adults can get a lot of inspiration, you know, from them. Like when you're if you're reading it out to your child, it it kind of I mean it, it would strike a chord even with adults. 
you know. <laughs> I, I say I say it's for readers from the age of eight to for kids from eight to eighty. That's what I say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely like- because you know if you have any any interest in mythology or ritual or religion or history, or mm-hmm. the very humoristic melding of mythology and history, for instance, when you have a, a, a semi-historical character, like also like King Arthur, that everyone knows around the mm-hmm. world, you don't really even know if he actually existed and when. Yes. So, but then you have the uh, the modern Arthur, and you have the uh, Camelot, and all the mythology that builds around it. Um, yes. Even though England, E.M. Forster famously said, you know, England, oh, oh, we don't even have a mythology. And of course, <laughs> we only have pixies and fairies, I think he said. Um, and that's why they were so enamored with Greek mythology, the great tradition of Greek mythology. You know? mm-hmm. So um, I think that um, these are actually four um, of interest for adults as well, because mm-hmm. it's really introducing a whole new idea about the world, uh, a certain way of looking at the cosmos based on mm-hmm. the year, um, because every culture and every civilization back then, including Manipuri civilization, and I use the word civilization advisedly and carefully, um, mm-hmm. uh, is this, was its own center. So mm-hmm. the way they look at the world around them and the way they perceive them, how much of it is specific and historic and particular to this place, and how much of it is universalist. Hmm. The universal aspects are where the comparisons are possible. You can have legitimate comparative mythology, but then um, you also have to remember that it is also very specific. It is also very individual. So Hmm. the scholarship and mythology, should it come into being one day, and hopefully this will also be part of the starting process of this, uh, is going to kind of swing back and forth between these two poles of the shared Mm -hmm. universal themes, which makes mythology so universally symbolic that you can get into it. You know, the story of Oedipus marrying his mother, for instance, or the the chariot that rides, that rides too, flies too close to the sun, for instance, you know, Mm. or horses that have wings. Every culture has horses that have wings. Yes. Um, You know, so uh, in Hindu mythology, in Greek mythology, everywhere. So Mm. I think one day when that develops, certainly I think. Maybe kids who start reading this book, maybe they will go on to study mythology. Who knows one day? Hmm. And talking about horses with wings, I've been to the Marjing Temple. Uh, you know, I don't remember. I mean, you would know where it is, but and I, it was so beautiful. And I, and you know, I was, I was really happy to read. You know, the la- last story mentioning Marjing and you know the horse. Uh, I, so let's talk about Polo and Manipur. You know, well, well, well. You've brought me. Onto my hobby horse, <laughs> um, totally intended, because you know when I was coming back, you know I used to live in New York, and I disappeared for about twenty years altogether. Okay. Um, and I started visiting Manipur. I was struck by the fact that all of India had cows on the streets, and Manipur had ponies on the streets. Yes, and this is something that was not there when I was a uh, uh, when I was a boy uh, in Manipur, when I was a young man in Manipur. So um, it, I found that the ponies were homeless during the uh, rice planting 
season. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and therefore, they were street, they had become street ponies. So I kind of mm-hmm. started working with the government and asking them. And that's how I got into polos, really through pony preservation. And one of the things that was topmost in my priority was to find them a home. And so mm-hmm. I started campaigning the government. First, I went to the um, polo associations also over here, but the polo associations here are not very powerful. You know, we are mm-hmm. a very poor state. We are very remote. We've become isolated. We are no longer the center of our own civilization, as I was telling our uh, king mm-hmm. yesterday. I said, oh, well, you know, back when um, the palace, this is used to be the center of everything, and now we've become the corner of a larger country, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, we campaigned very hard, uh, and I formed an organization called Huntry Equine, uh, with my partners, Rupa Burrow and Edward Armstrong. It's an American thing as well. Um, mm. And we actually got 200 uh, acres. for and, uh, and I insisted they were going to give it to me in the south of Manipur. And I said, no, no, no. We really have to have it uh, at the foot of the shrine of Lord Marjing. Oh. Because I had discovered through the manuscripts, these are all connected, right? Yes. Uh, that uh, there was a winged pony that was the ancestor of the pony. Because people mm-hmm. keep asking, oh, you play polo on what? On these ponies? Where are the ponies from? You buy them from India, you know? So mm-hmm. the Manipuri pony itself is a specific and uh, breed. Mm-hmm. Uh, some say one of five breeds, some say one of seven breeds, but certainly as uh, an endangered breed. We had mm-hmm. we had it declared an endangered breed here for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, so when I went into the manuscripts and I was just was curious about this uh, god called Samadona Yangba, this mm-hmm. uh, winged pony with uh, very fierce talons on its hooves and its knees and so on, and uh, it was the great uh, Pandit Kailchandra who showed me uh, mm-hmm. images of uh, Samadona Yangba, and it is and it, and it is to him that I dedicate my book, one yes. of the great scholars that Manipur has ever had. And so when I went to Marjing and I came back and I was visiting here and I um, I think I took some friends from the University of Kentucky, my friend uh, Mary Molinaro and Evelyn Knight and also a woman from uh, the British Library that I brought along. I like to bring people along to see Manipur through their eyes and to study. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I came back and I told my mother over lunch, hey, guess what? I just came back from the shrine to Lord Marjing. I said, oh my, I said, take me. I've never been. And I said, my mother has never been. After all, she is M.K. Binodini Devi, the cultural figure. Mm-hmm. So I took her. This was in April of 2008. And okay. it was a, just a dusty, uh, rocky path up the hill. It's an animist shrine, mm-hmm. rock outcroppings from the side of the hill. And um, I actually filmed her at that time. Um, mm-hmm. I put it on my website. That's when it actually started. Um, so I knew that it was sacred. I learned that it was sacred from the manuscripts through Oja Kail, uh, Babun Kail Chandra. Mm-hmm. And then my question was then why is it on the streets? If it is a sacred animal, why is it not mm-hmm. being looked after? Mm-hmm. Why aren't you valuing it? So for that reason, I insisted uh, uh, to uh, the chief minister th- at the time, Ibobi, uh, mm-hmm. was very kind and very nice. But uh, he wanted it well, closer to his constituency, really. Um, mm. I said, no, we, I absolutely must uh, underscore the symbolism, the importance of the sacredness of the pony, and I wanted it at marching. 
in Hangon, mm-hmm. where the shrine is. So that, that's how it happened. And that's why if you go to the shrine of Marjing, I hope you listeners out there will visit Manipur. And if you do, you have to go to the shrine of Marjing. It's now a very developed tourist spot, I'm glad to say. Uh, but then you also have, if you climb above the shrine to Marjing, who is actually uh, a, a god of the uh, guardian god of the northeast, mm-hmm. his uh, connection to polo and pony is actually secondary. It is something that I emphasized, but mm-hmm. um, but primarily he's one of the four guardian deities of the land in four different directions. He represents uh, the northeast. Oh. So the um, Northeast of Manipur, not northeast of India. <laughs> we have Manjing and Kobru and Tanjing and Wangbrail. These are the four uh, guardian gods. And Marjing, then I discovered from the manuscripts, he was playing polo, he had created this horse, you know, and there's a little shrine to Amadon Sayang by the Ayang by the winged pony, whose mm. wings Marjing cuts off. Uh, yes. And uh, the the and that's how the Manipuri Pony was born. And so that was like a lovely story. So uh, we wanted to kind of remind people uh, at Huntre of how important it was and why the importance was there. And that's why it kind of gave me particular delight because I'd written the story of the pony before for my polo project and for my pony preservation project. But mm-hmm. I was included in this book, why the uh, Manipuri Pony is sacred. Hmm. In fact, I came to Manipur to write a piece for Hindustan Times, I think it was around 2014 or so, about the Manipuri ponies, you know, and that's when I went to this Majing Shrine, and such a lovely shrine. Right. We had the, in fact, I was given the land in 2014. Oh. And... uh, you were the, probably one of the first people who came there because I was working on it since 2007 as far as my earliest files go. But my conversations were even earlier. I, I was just bugging the, any minister I met. I would say, like, why this thing? Why can't I just give it land? There used to be Lumpale Part, an empty land like Hangan, uh, where ponies used to be wandering around. And it was a, a tra- traditional uh, commons way of uh, rearing ponies. Like you would keep your pony there, I would keep my pony there. They would also yes. meet form groups and all that. And you would use yes. your, you're free to go and collect it when you need it for polo or for ritual or something. Because Manipuri ponies yes. are used only for ritual and polo and war back then. Uh, mm-hmm. Never for work, even though we have bullock carts, we don't have horse carts here in this country, in this mm-hmm. land. And so I said, why can't we just give some land? And, you know, they can, you know, the sons of the soil. Because, you know, after you use this, every owner returns the pony back to the field, this open pasture, open commons. They feed themselves, you know. In fact, a friend of mine used to, their family used to own a black horse. They, they, in name, only belong to them because they never were able to touch him. He was such a wild (laughs) horse. (laughs) So that kind of commons was something that I just felt some land needed there. And so the preserve, they're very kind. And now our current chief minister is developing it as well. So it's all very good. very pleased that now uh, younger people, the young generation now, the ponies become a celebrity now, a core celeb, uh, the plight of it. The fight is not over yet. We still have to, you know, do a lot more. Um, Mm. At least now it's in the minds of people. And um, we've made some... 
progress with the preserve, and we actually have a pony policy that the state declared as well. Oh, lovely. These are all uh, how to protect it and so on. Yeah? So oh. we had a very savvy governor. He was laughing at it. He said, why are you doing the pony? You know, if you just use the, the take up the cause of the pony, you'll never get any money because animal rights people and all, these are people carrying jolas and begging for Yeah, he said, uh, go, to, go, go to polo because mm-hmm. that's where the money is. Mm. That's where people have money, not not the animal rights people, not the environment oh. people, <laughs> right? Yeah, so, right? He is right, though. <laughs> he's right. So I said only in Manipur is polo an egalitarian sport, and we have no money. No one has any. Yes. But uh, so I, you know, so I went when I was uh, when I went back to the U.S. I, I was visiting Kentucky. That's when mm. I ran into my friend Edward Armstrong. And uh, you know, then I did, and uh, because I'm a curator at heart, I put up a pony exhibition of the history of the pony and polo at the uh, International Museum of the Horse in Lexington, Kentucky, which is the bluegrass state. It's very beautiful horse farms in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Yes. The United States Polo Association was there. Okay. So I said, hey, why don't you come along? You know, so. Only when they saw my art exhibit, my polo exhibit at the museum of the horse, were they kind of like, oh, this guy really means business, you know? <laughs> so so I, lo- I, I roped in the USP, and since then, the Hurlingham polo people in England, the Argentinians, uh, the Argentinian Association of Polo, um, and that's why we do international polo here. But that really has helped international attention and interest in Manipuri polo and Manipuri pony has really helped uh, the cause. You know, did you have to kind of do a lot of... Uh, um you know, speaking to a lot of people to collect the stories or they were just there and, you know? Um, actually, a bit of both. I started writing these stories as gallery notes. And like I, yes. Even though I'd written these things and, and uh, when the idea came up uh, from Penguin about a young adult, hmm. I had the good fortune of meeting uh, this uh, friend of mine whom I, I'd known through film called uh, Toyanga. And he had published... Hmm. Uh, these tiny little books, um, and and they were written in Maitei Bayek, uh, which is the, okay. the current mm. revived old script, which I cannot read. So I used mm. to come, have him come over and read it. It was absolutely delightful. So I took some stories from him, and then um, um, some from other sources. So Manipur has uh, some variation even within the Maitei community in the valley. So I went to Kokching, which is another major cultural center. There are certain communities. I was interested in uh, some variety as well, uh, not just from Impal area. So um, I went to Kokching to meet my friend uh, over there, who's another scholar, for instance. And so I kind of added these things. But um, like with, even with Tawyangba's stories, I had to retell them because, as as the cover says, it's Manipuri myths retold yes. um, for children, for children mm-hmm. English language reading public, right? Um, yes. And so uh, the the but his stories were delightful, and so there were some of his stories that we included over here, and then some from the previous things that I'd collected about black rice and shan and rice and silk and so on that I'd written or the pied cuckoo and all, and so on. But mm. the interesting thing, Manjula, is that all these stories have an oral tradition counterpart. 
So okay. then I would refer back to uh, my friend Mangangsana, who's a balladeer and a folklorist. Okay. And I say, what does it say in your ballads about this story? And he would tell me a different story. So let me give you an example. In the story of the deer that does not eat rice, the mm. goddess has fallen into the water. And uh, in the written version that uh, my friend Thawiyangba had written, um, her father, the god, sees his daughter's plight below. Okay. And sends divine intervention. Hmm. Right in the ba- in the ballad tradition, a little fish comes by and sings, hmm. and so the ballad says, "Let me let me sing forever praises to your beauty and your courage, little fish." And so that hmm. kind of so since there is no correct version, all versions are different. Even in yeah. the text, since they're being hand copied, they're all very different, little by little. Hmm. So. Hmm. Um, and the oral traditions are different for sometimes. So I've used my prerogative as a writer to choose uh, this from that and add a few things of my own sometimes, uh, like characterization is something I add, for instance. Um, and I do some Google research of ornithology for birds and bird sounds and all that. But primarily it is text and oral in manuscript and in song. Mm. And those are the two cross-checks that I do. I go back and forth between these two poles because these are the two original sources of these uh, mythological tales. Okay. Okay. And, you know, while I was reading it, before I got to the afterword where you say, say it, I was thinking, wow, you know, this got, uh, he's brought in like their echoes of Kipling, you know, just so stories and, and, mm-hmm. and of course the Bible as well. And then of course you say that at the end. So talk about that and how you incorporated, you know, making, you incorporated <laughs> these strains as well, you know? Well, the thing is that I'm not married. I have no children. Okay. I have a family, right? Uh-huh. So I don't have the experience of bringing up kids or reading okay. to them. Uh-huh. So, that was my actually my greatest anxiety. Would I be able to write something for kids? Because I've not really th- thought about children's literature, even though I'm a, I'm a huge Harry Potter and Lemony Snicket fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I'm certainly one of your friends, adults who like to read children's books. So I certainly am one of those people. Mm-hmm. But um, I had to kind of reach back into my own reading as a child. Okay. So when, I, when Penguin told me it was going to be like eight plus, uh, so I had to think about what I was reading when I was 8, 9, 10, 11. Mm-hmm. And so it was all the fairy tales, all the if so, uh, the the, uh, uh, um, the Rudyard Kipling uh, just so stories. That yes. Wrote, how yes. the elephant got its trunk and the leopard yeah. got its spots and very fanciful <laughs> things that he made up. And so I had to reach back to that. Then I reread a little bit of Aesop's fables mm-hmm. and I read um, Br'er Rabbit again. Just okay. to kind of, I read the Panchatantra, you know, yeah. just to see yeah. how children's stories were told by different people in different cultures because I had no clue how to write children's stories. Mm. Um, and so that is, I've had to reach back into my own reading, reading habit as a child uh, so that I could be, uh, I could say that I can write a story for children. And mm. my childhood was spent in Darjeeling in Mount Hermon School, and we had to sit through these sermons every Sunday. <laughs> 
And so there would be readings from the Old Testament all the time and all the baths and the, and the forsooth and the Lord spaketh and all this kind of biblical language. And somehow I think when I was writing it, I just kind of felt this language coming out. And I'm saying, where is this coming out from? Then I said, aha, mm. I guess those sermons in Mount Hermon School, those boring Sunday sermons probably seeped into my brain somewhere and lodged somewhere deep inside me and it kind of came out i didn't think too much until later Mm, it's worked (laughs) thank you (laughs) and also you know like when i was saying that you know it's also nice for adults to read not just for children because you know while i was reading it especially in, in some of the stories they're like these little nuggets of wisdom that suddenly strike you, you know, this particular one. And that is why the deer deer does not eat rice in that one. This is one of the reasons I marked this out. You know, dear romantic one, the gods decide whom we fall in love with, you know, and things like that. I thought, wow, very nice. So talk about that. Well, that's my own little thing I added, you know. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, that's the last thing I'll ever point out saying this is what I added because I did add a few things in every story. <laughs> yes. but, but as my mother, who was a novelist, uh, when she, she used to talk about a historical novel, which I translated called The Princess and the Political Agent for Penguin, she said, oh, I'm, not going to, I'm never going to tell what I invented and what's in the history books. They can go and find out themselves. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we, it, it's a stylistic thing, but also the point is, like, how do I connect to the child reader? Mm-hmm. Uh, you notice I kind of, uh, even the introduction, I said, no, I'm not writing an introduction. I'm going to write a dear reader. And, yes. and so we find the storyteller. So even the introduction, the introduction is not aimed to the parent that's actually pulling out her credit card to buy the book for the for the child, but mm-hmm. it's aimed at the child. So everything is aimed at the child. So I speak to them. And I'm also, also very aware that the language I'm using, since I had no experience writing children's uh, books before, um, some of the words were different. You know, So mm-hmm. I kept explaining words in a playful manner, like kowtow means to do this, in case yes. the kid does not know it. So you don't have to go ask your, you know, tug at your father's sleeve and say, Daddy, Daddy, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can just read it over and over again and come to an understanding of what the words mean, which is actually how most of us imbibe a language. Mm-hmm. But um, the wisdom that you talk about is really the essence of mythology, any mythology. This is why we love mythology. Even current day mythology in the making like Marvel comic books for superheroes, for instance. We like them because there's something there in the core that strikes us in our human existence that is shared across cultures and across time. Mm. And I think that is really the power of the myth. Yes. You know, it's yes. like Joseph Campbell also wrote about it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the arc of the myth, the journey of the myth, how the hero, like in the story of Polo, Kori Paba encounters a problem. He has to overcome it, you know, mm-hmm. and then only he does he become a hero. So yes. this is the, the trajectory of the journey of the hero is, is well known and well studied and, and wonderfully uh, expressed by uh, Campbell for instance, mm-hmm. well, I did to Star Wars, for instance. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
Um, I think that universality is what makes mythology attractive. You pick up any mytho- mytho- uh, book of mythology, mm. whether it's Lincoln or whether it's Sumerian, you'll find yourself drawn into it because it speaks yes. to a really human condition. And mm. that kind of uh, symbolism is really powerful, really powerful. And, re- and it's been distilled over the ages, generation to generation, word to mouth, mouth to mm-hmm. ear. Mm-hmm. And, uh, only the essence remains. It's like yes. a dispute of of wisdom over the years and mm-hmm. generations. We are talking hundreds of years now. You know, we don't yes. know how old these myths are, but they're certainly pre eighteenth century. Yeah, of some of them relate to the founding, which the according to our court chronicle is the first century AD. The story mm-hmm. of the uh, fire that never goes out in under a village. It predates the establishment of the Manipur dynasty. Mm. You know, so, you know, who knows? Uh, there's yeah. a lot of work to be done, but it's more important to study the aspect of mythology uh, rather than trying to see if it's really historical, because that's not really the point. Mm. Mm. That's true. And talk about, you know, uh, also this one as well. For as everybody knows, dear truthful one, animals can lie. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Madula, I made up that one too. Because, you know, I, because I was thinking the kid is going to say, how come a deer said that, you know? <laughs> can animal lie? So I figured I might as well tell them that animals can that's a, lie. that's a lie on my part. <laughs> no, you know, one thought about it is that, oh, wow, yeah, perhaps they can. You know, it's making an adult think as well. You know, in you ways know, that you, you know, have dogs. Like, I bet your dog lies to you sometimes. Have you been here? <laughs> no, they, they do. They, they lie to you. And they, but it shows on their faces how guilty they are and how <laughs> they are. They do lie. I've noticed yeah. that. Yeah. Yes. That's why my cat is light. <laughs> so uh, you know talk a bit more about the manuscripts you know hmm. um there's not a whole lot that i can talk to you about the manuscripts and mm-hmm. actually there's not a whole lot i can talk to you about manipur and manipur's culture and heritage i am exploring mm-hmm. myself and very often when i and i've done this before even in my film exhibitions uh, as a curator mm-hmm. When I'm curious about something, I don't find it, then I begin to create a project out of it. That's how the mm-hmm. manuscripts became a, became a project. If the manuscripts had been taken uh, care of properly uh, and had wonderful ways of storing them and so on, um, then I may not have taken that much of an interest in them. Mm-hmm. It's only because I found that there are so many holes and lots of things that ought to, that could be done, that ought to be done, that maybe that's how I started thinking about them. But the manuscripts is, you see, you know, one cage in Dunhuang at the end of the um, Silk Road in the Gobi Desert, mm. one cave had, a, I think, 150,000 manuscripts. What? The, just one cave. They have, I don't think they've even opened all the caves yet. It's a whole multinational uh, endeavor uh, uh, mm. centered around... Uh, the British Library. That's why I got some people from Dunhuang to come with me to look at these things. So mm. compared to that, and then the languages like Chinese and Sanskrit and Pali and Tibetan and Arabic, huh, by the way, in Dunhuang, they collect yes. everything. Because these monks and priests used to be the professors of old. Mm. 
right? Monasteries mm-hmm. and temples were the seats of learning, like universities were art. Yes. You know, so, and the Sanskrit tradition is huge. Pali mm-hmm. tradition is huge. Mm-hmm. Compared to this, Manipur, a friend of mine, Sushila, who is to be the director of the archive here, I asked her one time, and she thought Manipur had about 40,000 manuscripts, which is mm-hmm. a very small tradition of manuscripts, by the way. Mm-hmm. And it's a very small um, population. It's a very yes. small state uh, and a very small kingdom, always bullied by and attacked by big evil cousin Burma next door. Yes. Uh, so uh, the tradition is very, very small. Uh, mm-hmm. But the writing of manuscripts, which is on paper, as my friend Patrick was saying, I said, why are you writing handmade paper? Back then, every piece of paper was handmade. I said, mm-hmm. taken, <laughs> but I just want to emphasize it. Uh, mm-hmm. Everything was handmade. And the the tradition, the craft of the making of the uh, uh, paper in Manipur is pretty much lost uh, because oh. we couldn't even find the original plant. It's different from the uh, my friend Nita uh, runs the owns the Aurangzeb's last um, uh, factory paper factory in Aurangabad, and mm. I was trying to catch some paper from her, saying, "Hey, I'm doing a book. Give me some handmade paper for Sapa's work." And she said, no, 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 you do not mix traditions. Ours is from mm. uh, linen and cloth and cotton. Mm. And the Eastern traditions are more East Asian. They're from laurel and plants. And the plant that we use here is called su. And I've asked a couple of botanists offhandedly, what is su? And no one seems to know what su is. Um, so do you make your own lantern black? And then you make these uh, sheets of paper the lifting technology is different when you lift the pulp from the water, according mm. to Nita, she's a real purist and very difficult to work with when it comes to paper. <laughs> she's always like taking me off and putting it in my place. You don't know anything. I said, yeah, I don't know anything. Um, but the, um, the paper, the Manipuri manuscript, if you can visualize it, is about the average Manipuri manuscript is about 15 to 18 inches wide. And about four to five inches high. So okay. it's kind of a long thing, okay? Mm-hmm. And you write left to right using this lantern black, lantern soot to make your mm-hmm. egg. And mm-hmm. then these papers are stacked on top of each other like Tibetan manuscripts are, if you've seen those. Okay. Uh, there's a wooden slat, and then you put the sheaves of individual leaves of manuscripts, one on top of the other, and then mm-hmm. you put another wooden slap on slat on top and then you wrap the whole thing in holy red cloth you know so then you store it away um they are not bound only a few are bound and the uh, and bound manuscripts traditions you actually come from uh, from burma we have a lot Mm. of influence and Mm. uh, so the uh, the bound manipuri manuscripts you find are uh, actually mainly from mandalay area uh, because okay. our pundits used to go there. Some of them were captured against their will or whatever. They were highly prized because they were very good at fortune-telling. And mm. their burden sports used to keep these, uh, they're called ponna, kate ponna, meaning manipuri mm. ponna, as uh, people in the court to okay. consult for when is a good day to have a feast or when is a good day to go to war, you know. Mm. So, um, so these manuscripts and these stacks of paper 
And then some manuscripts are, uh, some writing is done on uh, leaf, like palm leaf. Mm-hmm. And some even on strips of bamboo that I've seen. Okay. The sizes yeah. can differ a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the tradition really comes, starts uh, around the 14th century. Um, and most of them are genealogical. Manipuris, uh, the, when two Manipuris rub noses on the streets of Bombay or Delhi, they'll try to find out how they're related. Oh, you're so and so. Where are you from? Or if you're from there, do you know so-and-so? Or what is your family name? Are you related? Oh, then you have to call me uncle, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, have a, I have a 50-year-old who calls me grandfather who has to call me. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> yeah. So people are very genealogically conscious and aware. And mm-hmm. so most of the genealogies uh, are written on these paper and every family and every lineage maintains them. Um, mm-hmm. And so most of the manuscripts are actually genealogies. Okay. Uh, maintained by different families. And then you have the statecraft and history and literature, and those are another group. And then you have the very small group of the magic, talismanic, sacred, oh. uh, Subika and Kutlo manuscripts, hmm. of which Kaaba is taken as art form. But none of my stories are actually coming from those manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Manuscripts are coming from other treatises, and like for instance, the uh, story of why the pied why the pied cuckoo cannot drink um, water from the river. That's mm-hmm. com- that comes from a manuscript called Tutenglon, which okay. means the treatise for the maintenance of rivers. Oh, a water management manuscript. Oh, but in those days, you use magic, you use folk tales, you use belief systems in the in the manuscript. So. Uh, even the treatise on polo, Kangje Loan, is not really about exactly how to play polo. It's not at all like what the Inter- Indian Polo Association's rule book of polo looks like. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. So that uh, the so it's a very rare tradition. Uh, there are about uh, almost four hundred Tibeto-Burman languages in the world. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. one of the smaller in terms of population. Uh, mm-hmm. language groups, but certainly the most variegated. Okay. So, um, like the Sino-Siamese has like uh, just one Chinese language is 1.5 billion, you know. So, mm-hmm. but of yeah. the 400 or so Tibeto-Burman languages, uh, my friend Patrick and I, we were counting the other day, I think only about eight of them have scripts. Oh, Latin, okay. Burmese, etc. Right, Maitei mm-hmm. Mayek um, is one of them. So these manuscripts are written in Maitei Mayek, okay, which went out of favor through force, through politics, through life history. Uh, when Hinduism came, it kind of gradually went out of favor until the British came and wanted to use Bangla oh. as an administrative language. Because at mm-hmm. that time, there was no need for mass education anyway. Yeah. So uh, my mother, who wrote Manipuri in Bangla script, was never able to read the old Manipuri manuscripts. Oh. It's like saying Martin Amos cannot read Shakespeare. Yes. It's amazing if you think about that disruption. Yeah. So 
the revival, uh, and a good thing too, of Maitre mm-hmm. Mayek in the um, universities and schools now and colleges now uh, mm-hmm. has only been in the last 15 years or so. Really? Yes. Oh, that's amazing. Oh. It's actually what brought me to manuscripts because there was a arson in the library in protest of some language politics that I don't want to get into here. It's another story. Hmm. But um, so the old manuscripts are written in Maite Mayek. Oh. Um, the later ones, maybe late 19th century onwards, maybe you can find some Bangla uh, script. Okay. But mainly for religious um, other related purposes. But mm-hmm. most of the manuscript tradition is in Maite Mayek, which is one of the few indigenous Tibeto-Burman languages, uh, scripts, script forms. Mm. And also it's written in two different languages. One is called Aribalon, mm. and one is called what we call Manipuri, Maite Lon. Okay. Aribalon means uh, old Manipuri. Okay. And it's a dying language. Very few people mm. know it. And okay. very few people, uh, even though the vocabulary, the vocabularies uh, overlap, uh, mm. I don't know how much of uh, Arib alone I could understand. Mm. Uh, so it's a very big challenge to preserve Manipuri manuscripts, not just physically, not just the tradition of record keeping, which the king, uh, you know, I met with him yesterday. Uh, he's mm-hmm. my nephew, by the way. So I was like, hey, you know, how's it going kind of thing. And mm-hmm. he's actually launching the book. I, I don't mean to be so uh, flippant about this. He was really kind. No, no, no. Um, You're not being flippant. I mean, it's just beautiful. <laughs> so one yeah. can get that, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but he has the Pandit Loisan, which is a council of scholars which has always been maintained by the palace. And I was telling him, I said, you know, it means a great deal for me to have you publish my book, to launch my book, because mm-hmm. here in the palace is the repository of manuscript keeping. Mm-hmm. This is where the Chaitharal Kumbaba, the court chronicle, is still being written today. Oh. So, and, um, and, of course, he himself, he is the scion, the descendant of Pakangba. That's okay. the way we believe it. Pakangba, you know, we are very, uh, as I was saying earlier, we are very, very humoristic. We, we mix mythology and history. So Pakangba is partly mythology, partly serpent, partly God, partly ancestor. Mm-hmm. And the king's ancestor, uh, our, uh, our his highness's ancestor, is Pakangba, the serpent mm-hmm. king. You know? So I said, you know, there's a story about... Are the ancestor in here. And so it's kind of meaningful that I was publishing it, uh, uh, having it launched by the king in the palace yesterday. That was really important for me because mm. the tradition as well as the, the mythologies all originating around that time with figures that are considered his ancestors that established mm. the Manipuri dynasty that's been unbroken ever since. Mm. So... Um, so that is one of the things about manuscripts is that you not everyone can un- understand it. And my friend Kaba Hemchandra was there yesterday with me. Mm. I took him along to the launch because he's the one I consult. Hey, give me a copy of that Puritan's Travels. Or what does this mean? You know, what is this? Do you have another version of this story? Mm. It's all over the place. You know, mm. it's very hard to. Uh, 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 
understand sometimes what he's talking about because he's actually going forth, back and forth between the old language and the new. Uh-huh. And uh, so, but he was there yesterday. Mm-hmm. And because, because he is someone that I also consulted. I go back from published stories like my friend Thawiyangba's to ballads like Mangangsana back to manuscripts like Kava's. You know, mm. so the manuscript tradition is still maintained, even though it's not as strong as before, obviously. But yeah. Manipur is a is a place that has a high resource language. We have lots of newspapers and television stations and produce little films and all that for a small place. It, it's mm. a small place that hits, you know, above its that punches above its weight, actually. Mm. Uh, so the manuscript tradition is very small. It's very minor compared to the major traditions. The mythology is very small. It's very minor compared to the Mm -hmm. major mythologies. But that's what also makes it interesting. It adds variety to what we understand of India, of what we understand of Asia, Mm -hmm. what we understand of human knowledge. Kaba, the custodian of so many manuscripts, his main point is our knowledge doesn't belong to us only. I'm so glad you're writing this book. Because now it's in English, it's going to get outside, abroad. It's going to travel. The ideas, the stories are going to be heard and read by many other people, not just us. Yes, yes. And, you know, also going to the Burmese influence. I mean, I was like reading this uh, this story and that is why the fire in the village of Andro never goes out. And I was thinking, you know, this is sort of like... Uh, um, um, you know, it's talking about how the Burmese influence came in. Or am I right? You know, that sort of thing. Actually, that's a very, very interesting question, and something that has fascinated me even I was even more as I was writing the book. And mm-hmm. that is, um, I came to the conclusion after having been asked where our ponies come from mm-hmm. that our ponies, since uh, since the Mongols invaded uh, central Burma and occupied mm-hmm. Delhi for a while, um, my thinking always was that our ponies come from Mongolian ponies. Okay. Because Mongolia is where even the Afghanistan and Iran also got, uh, got their horses from. So yes. that's where the horses come from, the ancestors. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing about Manipur is that even though the horses of Rajasthan come from Arabia and from uh, Afghanistan and Iran and so on, all of what we know as modern India today has always looked westward, whether it's mm-hmm. for algebra or whether it's the uh, spice ships or Vasco da Gama or the ports of Surat or Calicut. You know, everything has been uh, uh, westward looking, mm-hmm. much more than eastward. The influence of India in Southeast Asia is influence. You know, we take it mm-hmm. over there. But what comes to India has always been from the West. Hmm. Um, on the other hand, the northeast of India, which I think is, you know, might be even be more accurately thought of as the northwest of Southeast Asia, yeah. is, has always been eastward looking. And I'll let me give you an example. Uh, I've been dabbling with linguistics for a while because of this uh, old Manipuri and new, new Manipuri and all that. And hmm. We have uh, uh, names for the four directions, north, south, east, and west. Hmm. Um, however, in common usage, if you were to go out on the street today in Manipur and say, where's this person's house? 
instead of saying to the east, people will say to the front, mamang. <laughs> and people will say the west is maning, okay. real. Hmm. So it's not as if we don't have a word for east, non pok, that's where the day is born, where the sun rises. So Manipur has always has been looking eastward, front. The front of our country is Burma. Hmm. Our foreign minister that we, the only foreign minister Manipur used to have before the British was called the Minister for Burmese Affairs. Oh. We didn't have a Minister for Indian Affairs. <laughs> okay. We got Vaishnavism and we got trade. One of the smaller Silk Roads comes via, uh, uh, through Manipur, which is the foundation mm-hmm. of the Actis policy uh, mm-hmm. for the current government and uh, even before that, from Vajpayee's time onwards. Mm-hmm. But the uh, orientation, <laughs> to use the pun, is, <laughs> you know. So, and India never, no king or uh, emperor or kingdom ever tried to conquer Manipur. Mm. There was no military invasion of Manipur. Mm. But Vaishnav missionaries came. Yes. Trade came. Now, why is that? Hmm. I've asked this of certain people. We still don't know. I mean, it's not a common knowledge yet, you know. Yes. But partly it's a terrain. It's mountainous. And even mm-hmm. the British would turn back. General Suidam was turned back in, 19, uh, in 1825 trying to dispel the Burmese from here. Mm-hmm. He, couldn't, he couldn't even reach the valley. So the mountains are a forbidding barrier, natural barrier. But if missionaries can come and traders can come, normally in the expansion of empire, you have military, the religious missionaries, and the traders. They go hand in hand, three of them. Hmm. And here the military was absent. Aurangzeb tried to get into Assam, and the homes turned him back from Sarai Ghat. Yes. Where, where... Just above Bangladesh, right? Mm. So this region has not been really part of the Imperial India's history, and its orientation mm. has been eastward. So for that reason, I made it a point to include the story of the Shan prince, mm. Mm. because I got interested in rice, as I was telling you earlier, and especially mm. the famous Manipuri black rice, which yes. is actually an heirloom rice. And you mm. can get different varieties, but the best one is still called Poireton Chahau, the mm. Poireton's black rice, the mm. fragrant one. So, um, and the Shan were highly civilized uh, people, much bigger then than it is now under current Burma. Mm. The first president of Burma was Shan. Okay. I mean, they sent their kids to Oxford and Cambridge back then. Mm. You know, so... It was very prosperous, and according to this Poriton uh, manuscript called The Travels of Poriton, it seems that he is the culture hero. He's the one who brings and civilizes the Manipuris. Yes. That's why I make the Manipuri uh, kings all biting and scratching and fighting and all yes, that. Yes, it was very funny. I've been long <laughs> here in the side also. <laughs> they, are, they were a dirty, scruffy, and smelly brunch, bunch because they spent all the time fighting each other. <laughs> There's no time to develop weapons even, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Which is the reason why the Poirithan's bride says, no, I'm not going to Manipur. The, those yeah. awful people, barbarians over there, I'm going to leave <laughs> a nice palace and I'm going to go to that thing. It's like a punishment posting. 
<laughs> and if I am to go, then I have to take these things with me, hmm. including fire and the and the clay pot and the minor bird and the uh, guava and of course the black rice. So these hmm. are all heirloom, which means that the civilizing influence on on the Maitais uh, comes from the Shan, from the Burmese. Yes. Yes. Also, also, they were always bullying us anyway. You know, the, no one likes the Burmese in Southeast Asia. They're always raiding people. They're a martial lot, right? They went to Burma, to Thailand and burned the palace. And Ayutthaya was burned down by them. Mm-hmm. That's why we have Bangkok today, you know? Uh, yeah. They have the world one. So they're marauding, slave owning, slave trading, uh, militaristic, uh, aggressive culture. Mm-hmm. They even threatened this East India Company. Hmm. I went to the Silchar uh, on the edge of Bengal. Hmm. That's why the British were upset with them and trying to push them out, and how that's why they joined hands with Manipur to do so with the, for a common enemy. But hmm. we, it's we were under the Burmese for many years. Okay. Seven years of complete rule, devastating. Hmm. Hmm. You know, we were reduced to one tenth of the population. Slavery. You, you still find people in. Tripura and Assam, who fled the Burmese occupation back in the 18, 19, 1810s. Hmm. And you'll find people in Manipuri's communities in Burma who were taken there as prisoners, captured, slaves, and also as priests, desired, hmm. valued. So hmm. the all the orientation of this region, which, as I was saying, you can even call it the northwest of Southeast Asia, was yeah. actually looking that way. Now our problem, mm. our challenge now is now that the border was uh, between Manipur and Burma was closed down by the Treaty of Yandabo in 1825, I think it was, mm. and Manipur becomes a buffer state for the British Indian Empire just to keep the Burmese out because they knew the Manipuris could fight the Burmese. Then we become part of the British Indian Empire. Mm. As my mother liked to say, the only connection between Manipur and India is Krishna. Yeah. What I noticed that. What a lovely, lovely, lovely thought. The only connection is Lord Krishna. Yes. So using that then, is this mythology? Is this an, a mythology from India? Yes. Now. We are now one country, right? So mm-hmm. this is a mythology from India. India has many mythologies. There's no Indian yes. mythology. There's Hindu yes. mythology. There's yes. Jain mythology. There's Buddhist mythology. Hmm. There's Manipuri mythology. You know? But ours is the one that is also based on religion, but also ethnic. Hmm. So Buddhists and Hindus, you know, you can't tell them apart. The same people yeah. converting, right? Yeah. Uh, but this is a Tibeto Burman ethnicity and language groups. And and how this produces it's look, this is just something I'm just trying to discover on my own, for myself, primarily, just to find out, you know, what this place means to me and what I like about this place, because mm. I love this place. It's the most fascinating and rich place, and also very easy to work with because it's very small. As you were saying, everyone knows everyone. Mm. This is a small civilization with its own particular mythology. So much more has to be done in terms of research. Mm. Where the civilization is coming from, where the mythologies are arising from, who knows? Mm. You know, I certainly am not a scholar. That much I will certainly say this up front. I am not a scholar. 
I am writing it and I do the necessary research and I talk mm-hmm. to the people as I need to, to source the stories and to create what is my basic challenge. And that is to write a story that children will enjoy reading. That's my main thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think you've really succeeded in that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so on, on that note, we'll, we'll end the conversation. And for, for the listeners, please go out and get, and that is why, Manipuri Myths Retold by L. Somi Roy and illustration by Safa Yumnam. You know, it's really a wonderful book and it's not just for children and it's also visually very lovely. And plus, I think, you know, the, the, the myths are so fresh because the rest of India and the rest of the world hasn't, you know, have known nothing about them. And it comes like, I don't know, it's really inspiring and very creative. And, you know, it kind of sets off a lot of thinking among general readers too so yeah. thank you and it's from penguin random house india yes. and it's available on amazon and flipkart and yes. yeah. great so thank you so much for talking to me thank you very much manjula i really enjoyed this bye bye now bye this was a hindustan times production brought to you by hd smartcast HD Smartcast